I'm flying solo this week. Father Christopher and I recorded last night, but in the last few seconds of our conversation, due to weather here, the Wi-Fi crashed and we lost the recording. And I recorded again this morning, earlier, trying to get this to you by noon, but I wasn't happy with how it turned out. So I'm recording it yet again, a third time. Let's hope this, this time is a charm. I want to try to keep it brief. When I recorded it this morning, it was half an hour. So I'm going to try to keep it at that length or, or briefer. But I love these texts and I think they're, I mean, of course, we love all texts equally, all biblical texts equally. But it feels to me that Ecclesiastes in particular is a book whose time has come, that we, as Christians who are caught up in one way or another in culture wars that are redefining what it means to be Christian and reshaping the way our churches identify themselves and function, reshaping our worship and our preaching and catastrophically unfaithful ways. I, I think it's vital that we hear the wisdom of the teacher because of what he's learned from his teacher, our Lord. So I, I want to, rather than kind of read through the text, it's you, you'll have a link to it, of course. Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, there are selections, verses from each of these first two chapters. And what you see when you read those is that the teacher, Solomon, has, because of his gift of wisdom, sought out everything that has been done under heaven. And this is vital, that he's applied his mind to seek out all that has been done under heaven. So he's, he's grasped what I want to call all the information there is to grasp. And what he's found is that that, all the information, adds up to nothing. And that therefore that kind of life, the life that is consumed with what happens under heaven, is an unhappy business, an unhappy business. There are lots of different ways to translate that phrase, but I, I like that English phrasing, unhappy business, because when we're consumed with information and with business, with what is going on under heaven, it is unhappy. It is not blessed. It is not blessed. And he is talking about those things God has given us to be busy with. There are things we are to do, you know, feeding ourselves, clothing ourselves, sheltering ourselves, etc. These things human beings have to do because of the kinds of creatures we are and the kind of condition in which we live. But there is a way of being busy with those things under heaven that is wise in the sense that it produces outcomes that we consider favorable, but it is unwise in that it is not attuned to the heavenly and therefore is out of step with the spirit. It's, it's out of tune with the harmonies of God's life. So there's, there's a way of living life under the sun that is wise and not foolish, but still ultimately vain. This is the teacher's insight that, that being good at living life being good at feeding and clothing and 
sheltering yourself, being good at getting the outcomes that you want from your life, at building the kinds of communities that you want to build, living a life that is quote-unquote successful, that life is no different, ultimately, considered in, in the light of what is done under the sun. It's no different, ultimately, than a foolish life. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer drawing, there's a line in Paul, what matters is not circumcision or uncircumcision, but new creation. Bonhoeffer picks that up and says, what matters is not success or failure, but new creation. And I think that's exactly right. If we, if we hear Ecclesiastes rightly, what the teacher is telling us is that you can live wisely or foolishly, but there's a certain kind of wisdom that does bring about success and not failure, at least more successes than failures, but it too is empty. It too is empty. It's not a new creation. It, it doesn't actually bring fulfillment. And this is what he learns. Right? He masters life in a way no one else has ever mastered life. He found a handle for everything. He got a handle on everything. And when he had handled everything, he learned at the end that was an unhappy business. That his toil brought about nothing but vanity. Nothing, nothing was there because he had succeeded that he could not have had if he had failed. All of this is vanity, he says. Now, schematically, I want you to think about the difference between what is done under heaven and what is done in heaven. So Jesus teaches us to pray, we, we hopefully pray it daily, that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in part, I think what is being asked for there is for us to be able to go about those things God has given us to do, not in ways that are busy, that are, are simply busied, but are life-giving, that are alive in the Spirit, so that we're doing the things of the earth, but we're doing them in a heavenly way. We're doing them in ways that are spirited, and again, lively and life-giving. And the key to that, is the difference between things done under the sun, S-U-N, and what has been done in the sun, S-O-N. If our attention is on things done under the sun, then we're looking at, in the language of Paul, the things that can be seen. We're living by sight and not by faith. If we're looking at what is done under the sun, we're making measurements. This is wise and that's foolish. This is successful, that's failure. This works, that doesn't work. That have to do with business, that have to do with controlling outcomes, that have to do with making our lives in their carnal sense what we want them to be. But if we are attending to what is being done in the sun, then we are not chasing after wind. We are being led by the Spirit or moved along by the Spirit. So this, this is the, the fundamental difference. Either our eyes are set on what is seeable under the sun, under heaven, and therefore we're living lives of vanity that are chasing wind, chasing that which cannot be caught, trying to grasp that which cannot be grasped. Or we are living lives that are attuned to heaven, that are focused on what is happening in the sun, and therefore we are being led by the Spirit. And, and the difference it makes is that the first life, the life that is looking at what can be seen, is a life that is always trying to handle things. We, we are trying to manage, to control, 
to get a handle on ourselves, our spouse, our kids, our neighbors, our culture, our church. We're trying to handle things to get the outcomes that we want. What we need instead is to stop trying to handle things and to open up our lives, to open up our arms, to live with a, with a kind of ungreedy openness to what it is that the Spirit is doing. And in that we will find not the unhappiness of business, but the blessedness of serving our neighbor in the way that God is serving us. The psalm for the day articulates that same wisdom, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, which I, I think we need to hear as the wisdom of John the Baptist, who's directing our attention back to Jesus dying on the cross. This is God. This is what a abundant life looks like. This one, this one who is hanging here between these bandits, between these rebels. So the psalm, speaking in that same voice, gives a word to all peoples, all you peoples, all who dwell in the world, high and low, rich and poor. This is what I want you to consider. I want you to hear this song, this proverb, this riddle. Why should I be afraid in evil days when the wickedness of those at my heels surrounds me? The wickedness of those who put their trust in their goods and boast of their great riches. We can never ransom ourselves or deliver to God the price of our life. For the ransom of our life is so great that we should never have enough to pay it in order to live forever and ever and never see the grave. For we see that the wise die also, like the dull and the stupid they perish, and leave their wealth to those who come after them. Their graves shall be their homes forever, their dwelling places from generation to generation, though they call the lands after their own names. Even though honored, they cannot live forever. They are like the beasts that perish. So what, what it is that makes us beastly, what is it is that makes us so that we are simply a bundle of appetites, that we are aggressively seeking to fulfill, is that we live wickedly. But what is wickedness? What is a wickedness? It is trusting in our goods and boasting in our riches. It is thinking that we can ransom ourselves and deliver our own lives from the grave. It's, it's trying to handle life, to handle our lives in such a way that we get the outcome we want, that we succeed and succeed and succeed, that we and our children and those we love do not face failure, that we don't lose anything that's precious to us. And again, I'm thinking here not just about life, but ways of life. Right? So, so much violence is done, physical and spiritual violence is done in the name of protecting not just our lives, but our ways of life. That, that is born out of the attempt to handle things. And that is rooted in trusting in our goods rather than trusting in God. It, trusting our goods, not just materially, but intellectually and morally. Trusting in what it is that we've accumulated, what, what we have made ours. So in the epistle for, for Sunday, Colossians 3, Paul directs us to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Right. So turn our attention, like Paul is doing exactly what the prophets have done. Look at Jesus. Look to him. 
the one who is seated at the right hand of God, and set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Again, this is not Paul saying, don't care about issues of society and politics, economics, and so on. I mean, he's not encouraging us to be, to withdraw from the world as if we're indifferent to what happens to our neighbors, as we're indif- as if we're indifferent to what they eat or don't eat, whether or not they're sheltered, whether or not they're cared for. I mean, think of Matthew twenty-five. Jesus says, "This is this is the difference between the sheep and the goats. It's what you do for the needy neighbor who's next to you." So, of course, that's not Paul's point. What Paul means is, don't see those things in an earthly way. Don't see them carnally, but see them in and through the eyes of Jesus. Your life, singular, your plural life, singular, is hidden with Christ in God. So we have to learn to recognize that everything that really matters, everything that's truly factoring in our lives, is actually hidden from what our eyes can see. It can only be seen by faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. And that won't be revealed until Christ is revealed in glory. Because of that, Paul says, we need to put to death whatever in us is earthly. And then he runs off a list of earthly things that most of us, I think, or at least many of us, are going to hear as a kind of list of sexual sins, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. So we hear the first four, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, as sexual. And then the last, we hear as a, a kind of working out of that. Greed is simply lust for money or lust for wealth in the way that fornication is lust for bodies or lust for someone someone who's not ours to lust after. That's the way we hear, wrongly hear, Paul's list. But the point here is, is not the earthly is the sexual, although, of course, that's an aspect of it. But impurity has less to do with sexual desire and more with brazenness, with thinking that any line can be crossed if it has to be crossed for us to be in control. I I want you to think about the story of King Uzziah, which Scripture gives us. Second Kings, but I don't remember off the top of my head. It may be Chronicles, actually, but you can, you can look it up. The King Uzziah, who is a man of great wisdom in the way that the teacher is a, is a man of great wisdom. He is, is cunning. He's innovative. He makes all kinds of breakthroughs in technology, including weaponry, builds towers. He's a designer. He's a, he's a city builder, a world maker. He's, he's the kind of man after whom lands are named. And that wisdom leads him to brazenness so that at, later in his life, he dares to cross a boundary that is not his to cross. Right? And he goes into the holies, the holy of holies, and tries to wield the divine fire, tries to, to wield the sacred fire that is not his to wield. And he's struck with leprosy and he flees from the tent under the judgment of God. And I, I think he is a symbol of where we are, not just personally or corporately, but societally. That we are a people who 
because of our innovations, because of our technological advances, because of our privilege, we have come to be impure, meaning we think there are no lines we can't cross so long as those lines have to be crossed in order for us to be in control. And I mean lines of violence, doing violence against native peoples, obviously, doing violence against slaves, in enslaving them and then in keeping them in slavery, breaking their spirits, forcing them to conformity, doing violence against women, doing violence against children, doing violence against the poor, doing violence against those who break the law. Like we, we think that any violence is acceptable so long as our reason for doing the violence is a meaningful one. And this is what scripture names as impurity, thinking that there are no lines we can't cross. But there are lines we can't cross. There are places we cannot go. There are things we can do but should not do. And if we do those things because we can do them, we become leprous. We become people who are marked as impure, eaten up by evil desires and passions. And at the heart of that, Paul is saying, is greed. Now, there are various kinds of greed, and the gospel text for the week refers to all kinds of greed. But the kind of greed Paul is focused on is a greed which he says is idolatry. And that greed is not about accumulating and hoarding. That greed is about control. We, we have idols because we are trying to get a handle on those things in life that seem unhandleable. The, the reason we are using idols, making a god of war, a god of fertility, a god of the harvest, a god of the rain, a, a, a god of forgiveness, a god of vengeance, so on. Inventing these idols in order to find a way to get a handle on the future, I get to get a handle on those forces that we think we need to control in order to get the outcomes we find desirable. And those instincts, that, that greed, is what gives place to the devil, opens our hearts up to this evil desire, and manifests itself in impurity and fornication. It manifests itself in crossing lines that should not be crossed, and handling bodies in ways that should not be handled. And it's possible to be impure and a fornicator without ever breaking any moral code. The moralists don't define what these terms mean. The holiness of God defines what these terms mean. And the wrath of God, Paul says, is against those things. It's against that kind of greed, that idolatrous drive to control things, that's eaten up with evil desires, including the evil desire to control outcomes. And that leads to crossing lines and handling bodies that are violations of what God has established to be true. And, and the proof that that is the spirit that is moving us is what happens when our control is resisted. If When that control butts up against something that does not want to be controlled or someone that does not want to be controlled, if what comes out of us is anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language, if what comes out of us is fury at being resisted, we know that what's moving us is not the Spirit of God, but it's the wind of vanity. It's the wind of idolatry. It's evil desire. It's emptiness. It's the lack of good that is moving us. 
And that leads to lying. What we have to do instead, Paul says, is clothe, clothe ourselves with the new self, that is with Jesus, which is renewed in the image of its creator, renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. And in that renewal, in that one, its creator, there is no Greek or Jew circumcised, and uns- there is no longer Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free, but Christ is all and in all. And the reason that those categories, Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free, break down is because those were the handles we were using to control our lives, to control life itself, to try to keep from facing death. Jesus is the one who sets the terms of reality, and we have to let those handles be broken, let the idols be shattered. That's what should happen in worship Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, should happen in prayer, morning after morning and evening after evening, is that the idols we have been making shatter at the feet of Jesus. Right? That we, we stop trying to handle things. So I come finally to the gospel. Someone in the crowd says to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Calling Jesus teacher, of course, should bring to mind the teacher of Ecclesiastes, the teacher of the psalm, and to recognize that they are teachers because they direct our attention to the teacher, to, to Jesus himself, who is the wisdom of God. They are prophets precisely because they turn our attention to him, who is the word of God. This man rightly calls out to Jesus as teacher, but then he asks Jesus, or tells Jesus, to, to, divide, to tell his brother to divide the family inheritance. Now, I like to think that this man is either the prodigal or the elder brother from the parable Jesus is later going to tell. Regardless of who it is, the man wants Jesus to weigh in on the way in which the family inheritance is going to be allotted. And Jesus responds with a question. Friend, he calls him friend in the same way that he calls Judas friend. I think that's telling. Who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And I want to I argue that there's a fundamental difference between the judge and the arbitrator. So who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? So remember what Ecclesiastes gives us. There's life under heaven, under the sun, that is chasing the wind. A, an unhappy business. And then there's life in heaven, attending to what's happening in the sun, that is moved by the Spirit, that is life and life abundant. That's not unhappy business, but is life lived in care of God and neighbor. So we have here a difference between being the judge and being the arbitrator. And this man wants Jesus to be his arbitrator, not his judge. The answer to the question, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you, is, of course, the Father sets Jesus to be his judge, his judge. But the Father did not set Jesus to be the arbitrator over this man's business. In in the temptation, in the wilderness, Satan says to Jesus, right, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all these kingdoms that you can see. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you all these kingdoms if you bow and worship me. And we often rush to say that those kingdoms were not his to give. But Ivan Illich, who has this wonderful take on it, argues that no, in fact, Satan does have those kingdoms to give because those kingdoms are fabrications. Now, the earth is the Lord's. The fruit of the earth is the Lord's. 
all of the people are the Lord's. So the Lord is judge over every created thing, but he is not arbitrator over any of the things we have made that have no life in them. So our kingdoms, he doesn't care about. He cares about us, and precisely because he cares about us, he could not care less about the things we have made that are unalive, that are undead, that are false through and through. And many of us are seeking Jesus as an arbitrator and refusing to let him be our judge because we're consumed not with our families or with our brothers, but with our inheritance and how it will be divided. This man's concern is not, Jesus, reconcile me to my brother so that my family is at peace. He's not concerned about the reconciliation of the family. He's concerned about the division of his inheritance. And that is the vanity that is at the heart of success and failure under the sun. So whatever happens with this man, if, if the family inheritance falls out to him in the way that he wants it to fall out, or if it does not, what the teacher knows is that that is vanity, success and failure, getting what he wants or not getting what he wants. Either way, it's empty. It's grasping at the wind. It's chasing after wind. That what the Spirit wants is the reconciliation with his brother, is the reconciliation of the family. And that can only come about if he recognizes that Jesus is not his arbitrator, but is his judge. And so Jesus turns then, with that question burning in the heart of this prodigal son or elder brother, he turns to the crowd and says, Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Your life is abundant, not in what you have, not in your goods, but in your goodness, which is not yours, but God's, alive in you because of the neighbors who've cared for you. And he tells them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. This is at the heart of Jesus' teaching is you cannot serve God and mammon. And either you're going to be someone who stores up treasures for yourself, or you're going to be rich toward God. Now, nothing is said here about why the man's land produced abundantly. We can't jump to God caused the land to produce abundantly. It did produce abundantly. That's what happened under the sun. It went his way. He was fortunate, but that's not the same thing as blessed. And what comes to this fortunate man is the question, what should I do because I have too much? And what he says is, I'll make more room so I can have more things. There is a selfishness here. You know, my goods, my crops, my grain, my soul. But it's, it's that he is obsessed with making room in his life for more goods. He's obsessed with controlling so that he can eventually relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But his life he's, is being demanded of him in this moment. 
end, he is answerable to God because he's not rich toward God. And whatever else it means, I think being rich toward God means to live with our goods, whatever they are, to live with whatever happens to us, good or bad, in the sense of fortunate or, or, or bad or unfortunate, to live toward God open-handedly, not grasping, not clenching, not hoarding, but open-handedly, so that whatever is ours is God's and is open to God's use, for God to to give as God sees fit. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, he's calling the Corinthians to give so that he can bring relief to the Christians in Jerusalem. He says, consider him who was rich, who became poor for our sake, so that you through his, or we through his poverty might become rich. So he who was rich became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. And we're liable to hear that as Jesus, as God, lived a privileged life, gave it up for a while, became poor as we are, so that we might be exalted with him back to that privileged life. But that is not the gospel. God's life is not privileged. God's life is not privileged. God is not at the at the tip of the pinnacle of life. He's not at the top of the hierarchy of the haves over the have-nots. God is not the one who's most successful and most powerful. He's not the owner of all things and therefore has the right to use them as he wants. That is not who God is. God's life is not privileged. He's not the master in that sense at all. When he comes among us. He comes among us as a slave because the slave is the only life open enough for the fullness of God to pour forth. The life of a master, the life of a king, the life of a prince or a magistrate would be too narrow for the life of God to flow forth because that life, the life of the wise in the sense that the teacher was wise before he had his epiphany, the, the life of the wise in the sense that the psalm is speaking of or Uzziah the story of Uzziah speaks of, that life is too narrow. It's too cramped. The life of God can't flow there. There, there has to be a kind of poverty in order for there, in relation to the, to the things of the world, in order for the life of heaven to flow through us. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Because the kingdom of God comes to them. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. God feeds the hungry but he sends the rich away empty right? so that they can recognize the emptiness of their way of life, that they're living in ways that are chasing the wind, not led by the Spirit. They're concerned about things under the sun. They're not concerned about the things in the sun. They are obsessed with arbitration, but they refuse judgment. So what Paul wants for us then is not simply to be poor. Like the goal here is not not to be wealthy, the goal is to worship God, not not to worship mammon. The goal is not to be poor, but to have his poverty, which makes us rich. So there is poverty under the sun. That is not a good in and of itself. It's not good to have lack. We rightly call out to God in our needs. And so the point is not we should become poor as poverty exists under the sun. We want his poverty poverty as it exists in the Son, in heaven, in God. And to have his poverty is to have the riches of God. And to have the riches of God is not to be privileged, 
but to be blessed and to live a life that is a blessing to the people around us. And if and when we can get our hearts and minds around that, and we can only do that if we have our attention directed to Jesus, the Jesus of Christmas, yes, but also the Jesus of Good Friday, the Jesus hanging on the cross between those bandits, we, if we can see him for who he is and imagine our lives as fitted to his, then we will be freed up from trying to handle everything and everyone. And instead of grasping, we can yield. And instead of controlling, we can be led. And instead of fighting not to die, we can live. And live in ways that are life-giving, even as we die. Lord, let it be.